podcast one production. Performance has always been the measure of a car. A car, after all, is a driving experience, and most are all about the driver feeling the exhilaration of a powerful engine bursting off the mark, the immediacy of responsive steering, the thrill of blatting down an open road with a burbling engine egging you on. Speed and torque, the power in the wheels to accelerate quickly, have been the holy grail of performance in cars, and historically, those qualities have always come with a healthy dollop of engine note. So... What happens when we retain, even improve speed and torque, but do it in dead silence? What happens if a single continuous gear replaces that epic gear shift note that has defined generations of car chase movies and hot rod musters? Electric engines deliver immediate torque to the wheels, giving them unmatched acceleration, which, combined with the low centre of gravity associated with their packaging, means they will outperform their combustion engine equivalents. But in an era where screaming race cars are becoming an echo of their former selves, can an entire car culture built around the rumble of an engine adapt to the speedy silence of electricity? Or is there some sort of audio Viagra that can raise the electric roof a little for the petrol heads of yesteryear? If nobody can hear our power roar, does it even count? So it sounds like we're losing the soundtrack that most of us grew up with, the engine note of a car. But in an autonomous future where we're all passengers, silence, something long coveted by car engineers, becomes a bonus. Automakers are always looking to seal the cockpit and isolate the passengers from road and engine noise, particularly luxury car brands that pride themselves on completely damped, whisper-quiet cabins. So... If our future is to be the passenger, will performance now focus on comfort, suspension and silence? Hi, I'm Sally Dominguez and this is an episode dear to my heart. It's about future performance anxiety. Is pure speed and acceleration enough without rumble and throb? Is a whirring continuously variable transmission ever going to match the thrill of double clutching as you shift down into a corner and then accelerate with that deafening roar back out? How do we actually feel without the sound and vibration of a combustion engine? Special correspondent Drew Smith and I will drop you into the driver's seat of the current kings of petrol and electric performance before I take it to the serious car nuts and car pros to get their take on what counts for performance. Then, Drew returns to his interview with the creator of the Rimash C2 electric hypercar, Marte Rimash, to talk about how he views the future of the hypercar and the future of electrified classic cars. And Mark Pesci explores the relationship between alternative fuels and performance. We're putting our pedal to the metal in one for the petrol heads and we'll see just how fast we can go on this episode of The Next Billion Cars. As you listen to this episode, let's dream a little. Imagine this. You've just landed a few million into your bank account to drop on your next hypercar. Well done. 
Now it's time to go shopping. It's a crisp, cool Saturday morning and you find yourself down at your local dealer surveying the wares. Which one is going to grab you by the heart as it throws you towards the horizon? Let's find out. Over to the right, you have Bugatti Chiron, the latest and greatest from the Ubermeisters at Volkswagen Group. And over to your left, you have the Rimac Concept One, an electrified upstart from the Croatian startup Rimac Automobili. And visually, they are both fabulous beasts. The Chiron looks like a bougie gangster's dream, and the Concept One keeps the grill and intakes of classic muscle cars to look like, well, to look like something that chews petrol. Both cars visually ooze performance potential. You're stricken with contradiction. You remember a world before the internet, but the internet is where you make your dough. And although you might have grown up with posters of dino juice drinking Porsches, Lamborghinis and Ferraris on your bedroom wall, a bloke called Elon has made electric cars cool. You're confused, but that's okay. The track is calling and both cars promise you epic speed. You choose the Chiron for the first lap of the day. Now, turn up the volume on your headphones. Pulling back into the dealer, your senses are alight. Your ears are ringing slightly. The vibration of the mighty engine is still coursing through your back. And as you get out, you hear the tink, tink of cooling exhausts and waves of hot air tinged with oil and petrol caress your face. Time to try the rematch. Like a faithful robot, the Rimash destroys the tarmac. It's an incredible performance. But somehow, it leaves you cold. And you're not the only one. What's under the hood is your classic conversation starter. The Petrolhead's version of Show Us Your Stuff. It's an invitation to pop the bonnet, count the number of cylinders, marvel at the engine bling, and then challenge the owner to starter up. Now, that invitation falls flat with the anticlimax of an electric on-off switch. How will those passionate people with petrol in their veins find a place in their car hearts for electric silence? I asked two car buffs for their favourite engine notes and what they might want to hear in the future. My brother Jono was naming cars before he could form complete sentences. A walking encyclopaedia on all things automotive, he's collected Alfa Romeos since before he could legally drive and was instrumental in talking me into my car of the year judging gig. Jono is my car guru. So Jono, awesome to talk to you. What does car performance really mean? I think performance is a whole combination of factors. It's sort of, it's, it's the push in the back, it's the fear you get through the seat, it's the noise, the interaction level, um, even the smell. Um, I think uh, north to 100 kilometres an hour benchmarks becoming far less relevant than it used to be. Um, it was the in the 80s and 90s that was sort of the headline statistic of the Ferraris and Lamborghinis of the world, and it was uh, it was it was it was it was the you know, the, the main driver for, for everyone when they chatted about cars. But now we're we're sort of in an era where the stock standard hot hatch will outperform uh, anything from the 80s or 90s, and as a as a result, your, your, your traffic light drags have become uh, kind of boring and run-of-the-mill. Performance is, is shifting, and, and I, I don't know if it's, if it's 
shifting for the better, but it's now, it's, it's just a given. How important is sound to performance? I think, I think sound is critical. Um, I think, uh, you know, a good engine note, it, it connects on so many levels. Um, and to me, it's not just an exhaust. It's, it's the mechanical thrash that you get from beneath the bonnet. It's the sound of a drivetrain whining and gears meshing um, in a manual car. Uh, let's say, let's say a, a 1950s or 60s Ferrari, you've got that snickety-snick of the gear shift moving in the gate. It's all this kind of interaction that as, as a whole um, kind of embodies performance. And I think it's, um, it's not one single thing. And so, Jono, tell me, what are your top all-time favourite three engine notes? Give me a bit of background. I think I think being an being an alpha guy, it, it, it's uh, it's 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 heavily oriented in that direction. But the um, I think the top engine note would be the the Alpha Busso V6, which was which was developed in the early seventies, remained in production through till two thousand and five. It was um, you know it's it's been uh, classified as the most glorious sounding V6 engine ever produced by Evo magazine, and it's and it's really you know the soul of a Ferrari, but but for the masses. Again, with Alpha, the, the the twin cam Nord engine or North, which was um, you know produced for forty years from the early fifties, um, which is sort of a, a high revving, close geared, frenetic, energetic kind of power plant. Um, huge racing success in the in in, in the fifties, sixties, and seventies in, in GTA spec, um, and uh, you know that's 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 a that's a, that's a personal favourite. I think as a third, um, it's it's difficult to kind of limit it to three. But if, if there's to be three, it would be the um, the Colombo V12 from Ferrari, which again was produced for for, for roughly forty years. Um, probably most famous for the 250 series Ferraris from the 60s, 250 GTO, Pontoon Testarossa, um, and that's really you know six dual throat carburetors, the kind of a guttural snarl that hits you in the belly. Um, it's it's yeah will be very difficult to replicate uh, that combination I think. Such an incredible gut wrenching feeling when you have that amazing sound that you know is hooked up to these incredible mechanical achievements. Which, of course, is lost in an electric car which has no moving parts. So you don't get any of the um, kinesthetic stuff and you don't get the sound. That's exactly right. I mean, do electric cars even make sound anymore? Because I remember the, um, you know, the Fisker Karma made some sort of simulated um, Tron-like buzz as it came flying past you. But the only interaction I have with electric cars these days is um, is nearly getting run down in a car parking lot when they come silently flying out of the space. Yeah, well, that is the problem. I mean, some places do mandate that they have to make some sort of chirping noise because they can. Uh, we're so accustomed to be able to hear a car coming that pedestrians just don't deal with the silence of electric cars. So if you've got a silent engine, Jono, 
and you're looking at a car that is smashing acceleration on a petrol car. You know, it's killing it on acceleration, speed, it's handling, but it's silent. What do you want to hear? Like, what is it that you want that is performance to you in that car? I think to get me uh, fully invested in an electric vehicle, uh, I'd, I'd be looking for some sort of immersive simulated environment that made me feel like I was in something properly special. Um, and the ability to switch between uh, you know, a classic race car or, or, or a big 50s boulevard cruise or an 80s supercar, depending on my mood. Um, and I think it would need to be the whole box and dice, the, 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 the visuals and the feel and the sound, and, and, and maybe that would even extend to you know, a simulated bonnet to suit the, the, the environment. I mean, whether there be some um, nice curved guards or some big regal feel. Massive um, shaker on the front. I think so. I think so. All of that. All of that. Because I think the technology's there and certainly in gaming it's there. And uh, um, there's got to be balance because you don't want uh, to be taking someone too far away from the reality of where they, where they are. But um, maybe there's some sort of middle ground. I think there's... Um, I, I think if, if I thought I was roaring along in something special and meanwhile I was zinging along silently to everybody else, I'm quite, I could get my head around that. What um, about the concept that you might not be the driver anymore? If you're sitting in the car and you're not necessarily controlling it on the real road, do you still like the concept of being a virtual driver in that car and being virtually in any car that you choose, any performance car that you felt like? I, I, I think so. I mean, the, the, the thought of not being the driver is is, is a bit horrifying, um, but uh, only because I, I, I enjoy driving so much. But um, I think, uh, yeah, look, I, I'd, I'd still be wanting to um, shift that environment to suit the uh, suit, suit suit my thinking at the time. So you could envisage a future where maybe you even get a little shifter. Maybe it is like a completely immersive gaming thing where you've got a seat that feels like it's moving. Maybe it even feels like you've got some thundering engine underneath you and you can sit there and shift. Meanwhile, your electric car's just zooming off through the city. That might get me on board. That sounds pretty cool. Drew works at the pointy intersection of car design and tech, and he is a bona fide car nut, albeit with a tendency towards commuting on a push bike. Here... He riffs on performance with Marte Rimash, who is pushing the boundaries of measurable performance and electric supercars. In episode three, I interviewed Marte Rimach of Rimach Automobili about his views on the future of electrification for the automotive industry as a whole. But it wouldn't be an interview with Marte if we didn't cover the future of performance. After all, he's the guy leading the company that produces the most hyper of the electric hypercars. Before we get started, let's take a minute to review some of the numbers that electric cars are producing these days. The Rematch Concept 1 packs 913 kilowatts or 1,224 horsepower. It runs a 2.5 second, 0 to 100 kilometre an hour time, and all for a cool 1.47 million Australian dollars. The upcoming Rimatch C2 goes further, packing a mind-bending 1,408 kilowatts, or 1,888 horsepower, and a 1.85 second, 0 to 100 kilometre an hour time. The projected price... Just over 2.8 million bucks. Now, these numbers sound almost unbelievable in isolation, but a Tesla Model S P100D in ludicrous mode 
has 560 kilowatts or 760 horsepower and will do a two and a half second zero to 100 kilometer an hour time all for the relatively bargain basement price of 250 grand but once upon a time in the early 2000s it took Volkswagen's engineers six years of tinkering with 16 cylinders, 8 litres of capacity, 4 turbochargers and the laws of thermodynamics to ensure that the Bugatti Veyron was endowed with a mere 1,001 horsepower and a 2.46 0 to 100. The price of admission? 2 million. You see, electric performance changes the goalposts. But as we heard from Sal, it also changes the character, the very nature of experiencing that performance. Because the experience of high performance isn't just about cornering speeds, straight line acceleration or top speed. It's about the activation of all of our senses. Sight, sound, smell, touch and yes, even taste. And there are few better hedonic hammer blows than an internal combustion engine wrapped in a beautiful shape. In Marte's future, gone is the suck, squish, bang, blow of petrol being consumed at alarming rates, along with all the rich smells and the endlessly nuanced sounds of intakes, exhausts, and the finely tuned mechanical orchestra sitting between them. And in their stead is the steady hum, whine, and whir of a drivetrain that performs with the quiet reliability of a refrigerator. If I seem a little down at the thought of this, Marte confirmed that I'm not alone. But you can see that, you know, both the, the, on both sides of the market, both the consumer, so the, the car guys, and the supply, so the, the car manufacturers, are reluctant to accept this change. Um, car guys say, well, I don't like electric cars, you know, and the OEMs say, car guys don't want electric cars. <laughs> so it's like a vicious circle. But of course, you know, uh, if you look, let's say, at the Ferrari and the Lamborghini, they might look different from a consumer perspective, but in reality, they are very similar. If you look at the specs, you know, rear engine or mid-engine, whatever, uh, a rear-wheel drive or a four-wheel drive, depending on the car, you know, seven gears or six gears, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a very small difference in the end. Uh, with an electric powertrain, you can really offer something new, a new experience. What we are doing, for example, we have four motors, one for each wheel, so we control every wheel separately and so on. And the performance that we are offering is just crazy. It's uh, 1.85, 0 to 60 miles per hour and stuff like that. <laughs> so that's stuff that you cannot really uh, achieve with, um, with combustion engines. And it all opens uh, two lanes. One lane is, you know, guys that have experienced all of these other cars and they want to try something really new. And the other lane is people that would never care about uh, supercars but are into tech that you know, also want to show, associate themselves with environmental friendliness, even though it's not, I mean, it's not really having an environmental impact, these low volumes of cars, but it just so shows uh, the lifestyle of the person. Speaking of lifestyle, over the last couple of years, we've started to see the emergence of garages that specialise in converting petrol-powered classics to electric. Electric classic cars in Wales, for example, has happily ripped the throbbing hearts out of a 60s BMW, a 70s Ferrari and an 80s Porsche. Even the manufacturers are getting in on the act. 
Aston Martin will now sell you an entirely reversible electric conversion kit for your classic DB5 or 6. And when Prince Harry drove Meghan Markle to their wedding reception, it was in a Jaguar E-Type Roadster that had been similarly converted. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Marte was involved in the development of the drop-in technology fitted to both cars. So I asked him for his view on the future of electrified classics. Yeah, that's a tricky one because... Um, so, you know, for example, Pininfarina is bringing out now the, their supercar, the Batista, and we are a supplier to them. And, you know, when the guys came to us and asked, you know, Mate, what's the market for electric supercars? And I said, currently it's eight concept ones. <laughs> that's the worldwide market for electric supercars. <laughs> so what's the market for converted classic cars? You know, people are very sensitive about it, like, you know, people want to keep those cars as original as possible, as uh, true to their um, original state as possible. And then somebody guts them and, you know, shelves, show, puts batteries in there and people are very sensitive about that. So I don't know. The initial response that uh, we got from, you know, people trying the car, that kind of cars were like amazing. Uh, but uh, it takes, you know, some, some convincing and trying it out. But I think it's a very super small market, you know, it has to be... Um, but maybe maybe this kind of thing will enable actually what you said, like, uh, to make this sustainable. Like, to make uh, classic cars also acceptable for, you know, using them in the, in the city centers and stuff like that. Even though I don't think it's really relevant, like, I don't think... I hope that governments will be so reasonable to understand that uh, these classic cars won't contribute to, you know, the air quality of their cities and won't mandate them. So I don't think it's really relevant. It's, it's just a personal preference of people like maybe tech guys who are also into classic cars and want to have a high tech uh, classic <laughs> car, you know, combining the two worlds. But, uh, you know, I think it's really very, like, very few cases that are really relevant for that. Just, just personal preferences of people. Uh, generally, those cars, I mean, they are driven so rarely. doesn't really matter if they uh, spit out some, uh, you know, oil in the, <laughs> through, the, through the exhaust pipe or not. <laughs> so it's, it's more just of a, of a personal preference. And for as long as I hold on to my rumbly old V8 Porsche, my personal preference will be to keep it just as it is. Thank you very much. We've put pedal to the metal in a focus on performance here on the next billion cars. Speed is one measure of performance. Torque is another. For a sports car, speed is overwhelmingly the important metric, but for different vehicles, such as trucks and buses and SUVs, that might not be the case. I remember a few years back when I rented a large SUV to take me on a week of glamping, and the model offered at the top of the line ran on diesel fuel. Why was that, I wondered? I was told by a friend who owned exactly that model that the kind of performance, that power performance you can get from diesel makes that the right choice for that particular model. I'd never really thought about the relationship between fuels and engines and performance before that moment, but it makes perfect sense. And Hyundai took that one step further with their top-of-the-line SUV, the Nexo. Now, it's the one vehicle in their entire product lineup that's fuel cell powered. And it's not just a concept car. It's actually in production. I spoke with Hyundai's Miles Johnson at the North American International Auto Show in Detroit. And here's what he had to say about hydrogen as a fuel 
and performance. Hyundai is a big believer in that the larger vehicles are going to have to be powered by fuel cells. And we say uh, the trucking industry is probably the first big place. So, you know, having a, uh, a truck that's all electric um, and having it haul 40,000 pounds of stuff, of rigs behind it, you know, your electric range isn't going to be very far. If you're going to do an over-the-road kind of trucking scenario, uh, the fuel cell is where to go. So this, again, is an outstanding vehicle because it's an SUV. Southern California has about 40 stations now. And when you have this vehicle, it's got 370 miles worth of range. So we're investing, I think it was $6.7 billion in hydrogen fuel cell technology going forward. So we see this as kind of coming out of a phase where some of these early adopters are really going to start, you know, picking up on this technology, kind of like what happened with EVs. You know, EVs had a rise there for a while and then they kind of went away. And so the hydrogen's been around for a long time. It kind of went away, but now it's on the rise again. So we're positioned really well with a really outstanding vehicle in this Nexo. And in Southern California, like I said, you, you make the hydrogen available, the station's available, people will look at it and, oh, well, let's take a chance. Let's see, let's try this out. Some of what I see going on is that the bigger car makers, such as Hyundai, can put a bet on all of the different powertrains. But you can also say there are certain kinds of powertrains that are good for certain kinds of vehicles and you can lean into those. Absolutely, and the, some of the smaller vehicles will work well as pure EVs. Some of the larger ones will work better as fuel cell vehicles, and then you have a hybrid drivetrain in between on some sizes in terms of, uh, I would tell you, every platform we're making going forward has the capability to have electrification inside of it, whether it's a hybrid or going all the way to a pure electric. So. Having the scalability to change as the market conditions change, I think, is the key. Uh, not one of these technologies has really jumped out. The the EV thing, I think, is going to mass adoption. You asked about 50% of the fleet switching. That's a, that's a ways away. Uh, I, I think the key is, like I said, you got to get more and more people exposed to it. Your neighbor gets one and starts living with it, and then it, it goes from there. We've already seen that the future belongs to a mix of powertrains, electric vehicles, fuel cells, and hydrocarbons. What we don't know is the precise mix and how much that mix will be driven by what we believe are the performance characteristics of a particular fuel. If people believe electricity is fine for short distances, then that's all it will be used for. Perception will shape reality. It may be that hydrogen offers us the best of all worlds, power, performance, and saving the planet. In the long run, that might just trump most other fuels most of the time. Of course, Sally's been saying this to me for years. Truth. So, Sal, when I was in the U.S. working with you, I rented a whole series of different cars, a Kia Soul, a Nissan Sentra, a Toyota RAV4, drove you around in that. And finally, when I got to San Diego, Avis gave me a Jetta TDI. And it wasn't until I'd left the airport and hit the highway and tapped on the accelerator that I felt this enormous rush of acceleration. It made me very happy. And surprisingly, because all along I've been making fun of yours and Drew's fetishization 
vision of performance. But here I was. I was feeling it. I was falling in love with it. <laughs> Busted. And when I drove my dad to breakfast the next morning, I found an empty stretch of road and I said, hold on. And I hit the accelerator. Now, my dad bought himself a 1965 Mustang, so he definitely cares about performance. The two of us got pushed back into our seats, smiling. So, yes, Sal, performance is a very real, very tangible thing. But that thing is changing, isn't it? It's changing because, you know, um, the metrics are one thing, but the emotion is the other. This this emotional function that humans crave. And so, you know, what's going to happen with cars is we're so used to feeling this through our body, through vibration, through hearing, through senses. Electric cars are going to totally change that, whether it's going to be with some sort of virtual reality or, I don't know, je ne sais quoi. I mean, the, the, the field is wide open for what performance is about to become. So I, on my way back from the Geneva Motor Show, I rented a BMW i3. And it's basically the only electric car I've spent any kind of decent amount of time with. And there is nothing quite like the rush of torque that you get from an electric motor. The way something even as small and as commuter-like as an i3 can give you that sense of acceleration. The thing is, it's kind of a one-trick pony. Like, once you get used to that immediacy and that rush, there's very little left at an emotional level to kind of keep you engaged. It's an interesting one, the i3, because in fact, a couple of car of the years ago, wheels gave it car of the year. And I was the only judge out of 10 who didn't vote for it. So that was basically a performance vote for that little car, which as you say, Drew, I'm going to say is a one-trick pony and what I find fascinating, ran out of juice completely, not once, but twice during testing and nine professional car journalists still decided that thing had the performance criteria to be a car of the year. I mean, is that because they were trying to jump onto the future and get in front of the future and not being seen as old fuddy-duddies? So it's like, yes, even though this car can't hold a charge, we're still going to give it the car of the year because we're so in love with that torque and that just moment when you tap on the pedal. And I was in my cousin's Model 3, he has a brand new Tesla Model 3, and I went out for a drive with him. This is at Christmas time, and he touched the pedal, and it was just that magic moment. It may be a one trick, but it's a heck of a trick. But interestingly, it, it was against a Tesla Model S, and they voted out the Model S, which had not even arguably so many more innovative features because they said, oh, it kind of looks like a Maserati. <laughs> and they let the i3 win, which didn't have the performance of the Tesla. And I was just like, mate, I'm just going to vote for the Mazda 3. I'm so out. <laughs> so there's been an interesting change in the European legislation over the last couple of weeks, and they're now starting to introduce mandatory speed limiters in the European market from year 2020. And this has a couple of interesting second order effects. It means that you don't have to engineer cars quite so heavily because if they're not going to be doing 260, 270 kilometers an hour on the autobahn, you can make them a little bit lighter. And, you know, one of the greatest enemies of a great performance car is weight, right? So one of the things that I'm actually really hopeful about is that you know, this combination of light weighting products plus the amazing performance density that you get from electric drivetrains will actually open up opportunities for new types of performance cars. One of the things that we struggle with at the moment is things like the Tesla Model S. Uh, they're super, super heavy. The Model S, 
around 2.2 tonnes. The Model X, it's getting on for 2.5. But if we can start getting the weight of those chassis down, we can start getting the dynamic performance of these vehicles up and we start putting back into them the fun that we might be losing from, you know, the sound of the engine or, you know, the the, the weight of the, the chassis that we have at the moment. Kind of interesting, though, because there's the fun. But if you're a passenger, you know what it's like when you're the passenger and you've got the grab handle and you're like swinging from side to side as the driver is having an awesome time, I'd argue that the passenger's not having such an awesome time. You're like getting thrown around. So in fact, if there's no driver, you're not going to let the car behave that way. Like the car's now going to go back to this whole, are you an armchair on wheels? Like this luxury jet experience, right? Because we don't get to hold the wheel. And if you're not holding the wheel, getting thrown around is not as much fun. Let me broaden this out a little bit because in my segment, I talked about the power is the other kind of performance. Are we going to see hydrogen take a bigger role when we're talking about, let's say, trucks or buses or vehicles that need a lot of power to the wheels because they're moving a big load? Or is that going to be electric or is that going to stay petrol? How do we handle that aspect of performance? Well, I mean, when when we talk about the effect of hydrogen on the way the car drives, since the hydrogen is creating electricity, it's basically an electric motor either way. You know, so um, same advantage, same immediate torque, same sort of uh, seamless acceleration, just goes a bit further, you know, a bit more juice. Still pretty light, which is fantastic. I mean, and of course, there are some other fuel techs coming up. I'm still, I'm holding out for this one that's going to convert hydrogen dioxide into fuel. I think that's going to be another thing. But again, it'll all be about an electric engine, which basically has the same performance advantages regardless of the fuel. I think coming back to your point, Mark, like there are there are going to be vehicles for which absolutely hydrogen is going to make much more sense because it comes down purely to energy density and the amount that you can the amount of energy that you can store within the chassis of a vehicle. So long distance trucking, absolutely. Long distance car trips, more than likely. But for the short to medium distance stuff, hydrogen doesn't make a huge amount of sense. What happens to the drivers in a country when they're suddenly going from your normal sort of Celico, whatever, which is going to have okay performance, but not really great, to vehicles that now have an entirely different performance envelope, where they actually have real torque, where they have real acceleration. Are the drivers themselves going to suddenly become far more dangerous because they have that much more power? I guess this is one of the interesting things about uh, electric drivetrains is that you can manage power delivery far more precisely uh, than you can with traditional, uh, you know, petrol petrol drivetrains. So, you know, something that takes an enormous amount of uh, computing power and and mechanical effort, something called torque vectoring, which allows you to uh, speed up and slow down uh, ve- uh, wheels. In independently on either side of the vehicle. That's something that's actually super easy to accomplish with uh, electrics, right? And and a little bit of smart programming. So even though these cars do have this enormous performance potential, being able to meet that performance out in a way that makes it manageable for novice drivers is actually a slightly easier when it comes to an electric car. Also, it's conceivable that if you have so much control going on in this um, driving environment, in the infrastructure of tomorrow, or almost, um, that you could actually electronically speed limit any car on the road. I mean, definitely if they're uh, if they're driverless vehicles, but um, it's pretty pretty conceivable that you could do that across the board. I think we come back to this concept that we will handle in the last episode of the series: is the car is the software platform embedded in 
all of these other software systems. All right, folks, I feel like we've really driven the idea of performance pretty much as far as we can go. Performance matters to the driver. But what about the passenger? We've been talking about this, who really, in some sense, only cares about getting from point A to point B. The journey of the passenger has transformed hugely from ride-sharing, rentable e-bikes, personal taxi drones. That's all just getting started. So we're going to be taking passengers for a ride into the future on the next episode of The Next Billion Cars. The Next Billion Cars was written and presented by Mark Pesci, Sally Dominguez, and Drew Smith, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell, and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci, Andrew Smith, and Sally Dominguez, thanking you for listening. 